what's better than earning money from a nine to five job? It's earning money while you sleep, which is made possible if you start investing. You're listening to the Real Estate Investing Demystified with your very own dynamic duo, Ava Benasaki and August Biniaz. Tune in as we discuss everything real estate, both on the passive and active sides. We feature life-changing stories of today's real estate leaders that will help build your own roadmap to success. This is a show that will lead you to diversified portfolio, a much bigger revenue, and a next level venture that brings you a smooth cash flow. Let's get this episode started. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Three days before Christmas. Is it three days? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and we've had a crazy snowstorm here in Vancouver and taking videos, sending it to a lot of my American friends who August. haven't seen snow. Oh, now that's uh, right. That's and right. didn't think it snows that much, but it's very beautiful because usually it rains a lot. So it snows and then the next day is all slushy and the snow is gone in a few days. It's been super cold here for a few days and the snow is still there. August is like a little boy, like going out in the snow uh, and he's so excited. I don't know about little, but yes. I'm wow. On, Okay, so, so other than that, let me think. Oh, yeah, so I fashion. So marketing and branding is super important. That's so our plan for our YouTube show, and this is for viewers and listeners who can't see us, is that on our YouTube show, I wear the same shirt and a different tie on our show, and Ava wears a different outfit. But today I'm wearing my suit and white shirt. So this is because I was coming off a different show this morning and I looked so you fresh. You look so good. I, I looked so sharp that I thought <laughs> I'll just keep this look for the show today. So <laughs> Looking good, you, August. Uh, Looking you know, good. You'll, you'll see me in my suit jacket today. Other than that, yeah, Christmas holidays, everybody usually in cold countries like Canada, everybody goes to Florida and hot places around the world. We're going to Alberta. And, uh, so you know, are you excited? Uh, You're going to have a little enthusiasm we're, there. We're going to Ava's family, Ava's parents home in Edmonton or in, close to Edmonton there. Yes, that's right. Yeah, So we're, we're going somewhere colder. We're going somewhere colder. For the winter. But anyways, let's get on to the show. Our guests, we plan to bring our guests for a long time. I've been following this young man and really impressed with what he's accomplished. And I feel like he's a good friend. We've had multiple conversations, but looking to have a great interview and learn more about Jason. Yeah, let's dive into things. So I'm going to start off with his bio. Now, by the way, Jason Stubblefield yes. is his name. Jason yes. Stubblefield. So Jason has been investing in real estate for over 10 years. He started with single family homes and has since moved into the multifamily real estate space. So he scaled his portfolio to over 1,000 multifamily units in just a few years. So since starting his company, Jason has always been mindful of the tenants that he serves. That concern led him to transition his company into the affordable housing space. So his company is now devoted to helping solve the affordable housing crisis while maintaining strong returns for his company and his investors. I so, think a super important sentence right there is solving a problem, but also making profits for investors, which we're going to get into, but keep we're going. to dive into that, yeah. So prior to becoming a full-time multifamily entrepreneur, Jason spent over 11 years in software development and has a Bachelor of Science degree in computer science from the University of Memphis. He also is a United States Marine Corps veteran. So we got a Marine, like a real Marine, not people complimenting each other. Man, you're a Marine. Know that he's a real Marine. He's a real so. Marine. So we believe this interview with Jason will bring great value to real estate investors looking to invest in affordable housing. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the show, Jason. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the warm introduction. Hey, I'm not looking as spiffy as August, but hey, man, don't change it at all, man. You're looking fly today. I'm glad to be in the presence of both of you all. So, so thanks for letting me join you for a few minutes. Right on, first. Jason. You know what? We'd love to start off. If you could just tell us about your background and your start in real estate, please. 
Yeah, yeah. So you summed it up pretty good with that introduction there. I started off in humble beginnings, like a lot of people really was just trying to find a way out, right? Trying to gain some income. So I joined the Marine Corps, left that, decided I need to get education. Computer science was the major I chose. I chose that major because it's one of the few things I knew that I could actually graduate with and do something and make some money. So then I was in a corporate career, thought that was living the American dream, like I was going to be okay. And then I realized I was short-sighted in that. So that left me like a lot of other people saying, oh, all right, well, hey, you make six-figure income or whatever, but where's your long-term retirement at? How do you get out of this cycle of just, hey, make some money, spend some money, life event happened, the rat race, right? So trying to escape that, that led me into real estate. And then I landed on multifamily. So multifamily was one of the avenues that allowed me to sort of expedite the time that I thought was going to take me to be able to leave my job and have some sort of financial independence. So thankfully that happened. That led me here. Also, I'm pretty sure we'll touch on affordable housing look a little bit and what I'm doing with that. That's me in a nutshell, man. Just trying to make my little dent in the world here. That's it. Just to touch on what you mentioned there about from single family to multifamily, what was the appeal of multifamily? Because a lot of time investors who've never don't understand how multifamily works, how multifamily is really purchased because of the cap rate, because of the revenues it produces, whereas single family is really purchased on the comparable approach. Buying a multifamily community or building is like buying a small business. So you're looking at the income it's producing. Talk to us about when did a light bulb go off when it comes to multifamily or the difference between multifamily and single family? Talk to us about the appeal. Certainly. Yeah. So I started in single family and it really brought down the time. Right. I had a small single family portfolio, looked at how much money I had coming in and said, how many of these single families am I going to need before I could leave my job, retire early, whatever. And uh, man, it was depressing. I was like, hey, it's going to take me 20 years or something like the rate I was going. And so multifamily was really appealing to me because it just expedited everything. Right. And so I think about multifamily like buying a business and you can buy a business and sell it at some sort of multiple. Right. So what we're doing here in multifamily is buying and then selling at a multiple, selling a business that's already income producing. You make it produce more income and then you sell it for a profit. And so where a single family, the comparable approach is really just hope, right? You got to hope that the market saves you, that it goes up. And if you're in a market like we are now, good luck, right? Because you may not see those prices go up for quite some time. But there was more control, more levers to pull when it came to multifamily. I went that route and it paid off. Awesome. Right on. Now, next question is, what is affordable housing? And I guess the follow-up question would be section eight. So are these the same thing? And maybe you can give us like a crash course on affordable housing in the US, please. Ooh, a crash course at affordable housing. All right, let me take a stab at that. So affordable housing, like the term is just for spending no more than 30% of your gross income on housing. Right. If you're 30 percent or lower, that's considered affordable housing. Now, under that large umbrella, you've got all these different programs. Right. So Section 8 would fall underneath that. You've also got things like HAP contracts and where I, my company focuses at Section 42. So with that being affordable, like 30 percent or less. Right. There's other programs to sort of help that happen. And if there's anything that's sort of assisting people to stay at that 30% or lower, that's considered affordable housing. Got it. So just to break this down a bit more. So if someone's income is 30% of their income should be used for rent, that's when they become eligible to be able to apply for affordable housing. Is that how it works? It caters to a certain demographic because of their income? 
or anyone. No, we're not there yet, August. All right. So you're getting into the qualifications of a tenant and stuff like that. So this is just terminology right now. So to say that your housing is affordable, it's supposed to be a 30% of income. Now, what has happened in the U.S. over the past years, right? Rents have skyrocketed in several places. And so what happens is a lot of people struggle to find 30% of their income going towards housing. They're spending 35, 40, 50% or even higher, right? And so the effort then becomes, well, how do we make things that are affordable? And so this starts at the national level. So the government comes out, they look at every market, they determine what they call the area median income. All right. And then based on the area median income, they're able to cast buckets of what they would call affordable. And so it may be 80% of the area median income or 60% of the area median income is what they would consider affordable in that market. All right. Does that make sense? It does. But walk us through the journey. So we want to do an affordable housing project with you. We want to syndicate it, bringing some investors. Is the property that we're buying already has the affordable housing on its title? So we already know we're buying this 100-unit apartment building in, let's say, in Alabama or some other state, and it's a 100-unit building. Do we know day one that this building is affordable housing, which has certain restrictions on how much rents we can increase or what type of tenants demographics can come and rent from us? Can we buy a 100-unit building and turn it into affordable housing? Like, how does it logistically work? All right, so you're getting into the weeds now, but let's do it. I'm going to roll up the sleeves and try to ride with you on this journey, right? So the best way for you to understand this is going to think about how affordable housing even gets developed in the first place, right? So obviously, you've got a lot of experience. To be able to build something out of the dirt with the cost of labor, cost of construction, right? materials, all of that stuff, and still not charge the maximum amount of rent that you can is impossible, right? So in order to, was it's impossible to do and make a profit, right? And so developers aren't in the business of not making a profit. So the way that this gets built from ground up is that it's a public-private partnership. And so the government will allocate funds to every area saying like, okay, based, this is Georgia's allocation. This is Texas, California. They get a pot of money for affordable housing. Then the state is going to take that money and issue bonds for affordable housing. The way this gets built is, I guess, the simplest model to put it in is that banks will provide loans, right? Let's call it 50% of the project costs. Okay. And then the other percentage will be built using what we call tax credits. Or that's for companies, institutions, think of like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, people that aren't necessarily, I mean, they want returns, but they aren't return driven. You know what I mean? They're looking for a tax incentive, right? And so they purchase these bonds in order to have those tax breaks. So if you got 50% coming from a bank and you've got the equity being done from an institution that isn't necessarily looking for that much of a return, now you're able to offer housing at an affordable price because you've been able to construct this project for relatively minor cost compared to market rate. Your cost of capital is much lower. Cost of capital is cheaper, right. So that gets it started. The way that gets started is usually with a 30-year plan, right? But the tax breaks are only going to be for 15 years, right? So I can go into nuances there. So it's a 15-year program. There's usually a 15-year extension. Now, the initial tax credit equity investor, that person, that Bank of America, that Wells Fargo, that Amazon, whoever's buying those tax credits, they have a period of time where they get their tax breaks, okay? And then after they get their tax breaks, the tax breaks are no longer useful for them. And then these projects are really left to the market, right? 
So at that point, the developer and the tax credit equity person or entity will part ways and this project will go on the market. Now, that's where my company comes in at, right? So we don't necessarily do the ground up construction, but we look to buy existing affordable projects as they've come out of that initial compliance period, but they're still affordable. And that's where we get into the juicy stuff like value add strategies, being able to go in, resyndicate them again. And that's how we profit. Okay. So you talked about kind of where it starts from the early on. Now, when you're coming in to buy one of these projects that comes on the market, does it have a restriction on it as far as how much rents you can ask and how much rents you can increase? Does it have those rent restrictions on it? It does. Yes. It does. does it have any advantages as far as debt? that you're going to get on the property because it's a affordable housing project? Do you get any advantages on debt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one of the incentives about this, right? So we're able to get long-term sometimes at 35 to 40 years, whereas typical market rate, 25 to 30 years is about the max. Rates on affordable projects are usually a little bit lower. So that, and then there's also some added leverage. Maybe there's a lower debt service coverage ratio, depending on it. And then also with that, you've got other entities, right? So you've got different state agencies, home loans, CDBG funds, nonprofits. You've got other people that sort of help to make the capital stack more attractive, right? So you may be able to layer up some additional funding on top of the bank funding to make these deals work. It's a national crisis here in the United States. So there's an effort by a lot of people, right? A lot of different institutions that try to help in this area. And so my company's joining in to do that. But because of that, you get these attractive financing packages and each deal is different, but we look to put something together that's going to work. Tremendous, tremendous. And now you're talking about profit and impact investing earlier in your bio as well. But obviously investors are looking for profit. Now, another thing that I could connect here is we're located here in Canada. And one of the reasons we invest in the US and particularly in the Sunbelt states is because the business friendly laws and landlord friendly laws that exist, there is no rent control. We can increase the rents as we see fit. And that's one of the reasons that so much capital is being invested into the US as the impetus for us wanting to invest in the US. But now you're talking about a situation and investment where those restrictions exist. How can you make profit when earlier on you talked about in the business of NOI, we're in the business of increasing the income the property produces. If you have these restrictions on rent increases or the amount you can charge, how can there still be a margin? How can there still be a profit to be made? How is that profit created with those restrictions? Right. So, so just like in most of the market rate models, you predict some sort of inflation, right? You may say, hey, market's going to go about 3% every year, 5% every year, something like that. Well, the same thing happens in these affordable projects. Even though it's a fixed income amount, it's not the same income amount. And so what I found is that a lot of these developers who built the project are just developers. They're not multifamily operators. They build a project and then they go to another project. So what we find is a lot of operation efficiencies, right? So they'll just, the expense column will be way out of proportion than what is required or necessary. You would be astonished, right? Especially having a market rate experience that you have. So that's one way. And then also they don't always go up. Sorry. So one of the projects, when I say go up, they don't always go up on the rents every year. So they built the project, they got in, the developer got a fee. It's been eight years since they first bought this thing, 10 years. The developer might be on autopilot. They're not necessarily trying to max out rents. They just want to keep it full. So we found a delta 
uh, oftentimes in between what the maximum amount that's still affordable is and where the current rents are in that project. So right now we're doing a project and it's got $300 of rental increases while being affordable. Right. And so you still find those value add opportunities even within that. And because it's nuanced, because it's a niche, because everybody doesn't necessarily know about it, there's less competition in bidding. And then it's also highly demanded product. Amazing. We bought a project in Houston last year and few of the units had certain rent restrictions on them. I think 20 or 30 units from the 250 unit building had certain rent restrictions on them. How does that work? Can just a part of a building have rental restrictions and not the whole building? And then it was also expiring. So one of our pitch to our investors was, hey, these units are have rent control on them or rent restriction. I'm not sure what the exact terminology is, but in a year it's expiring and we're going to bring this back to market, which is four dollars per unit without even doing any renovation if we don't end up going that route. Talk to us about how that works and maybe explain that. Yeah, yeah. So I forget how you word something alluded to like the government failed in this project, right? Just building housing projects, the ghetto, right? Those properties with clotheslines and all that stuff, right? Catastrophic failure, right? And so now they've gotten smarter. And so they realized that concentrated poverty is not the route to go, right? Usually. So what you purchased is probably some sort of, it was like a tax incentive, the original developer or someone in that process got. So they said, hey, carve out however many, 25% of this project, leave it for affordable tenants, right? And we'll contribute to the project in some amount. So they probably got an equity check for that, right? It's for a duration of time. Now you're buying it. It's going to expire. You're going to take it back to market. Okay. So that's sort of the ways that they get creative in order to make it happen out of a market rate project hey, we're not going to do the whole thing. We'll just do a portion of the thing. Sometimes it is the whole thing and it just depends on where we are in the market or what area of a town it's in, something like that. Okay, that's kind of what I was yes. thinking about originally. All right, next I question we, here. Did we touch on this? We order? did, we did. We touched on this, yes. okay. Maybe so I have a question for you. Are there any implications for LP investors when investing in a syndicated deal, which is focused on affordable housing? When you say any implications, like what do you mean specifically? We kind of mean- Like any incentives or any drawbacks? Is it just like investing in any other syndication, which is has its own business plan, has an exit strategy? Is there something different that investors should watch out for? Because the way I see it is these days, investors are looking to make an impact, make a change, make an investment so that it can change the world. So if they're looking at two different syndications, one of them has a housing affordability component to it, the other doesn't. And even if the returns are a bit lower, in my opinion, it would be a no-brainer for investors wanting to invest in affordable housing, which has an affordable housing component and helps others. Is there something else they should watch out for? Is there negative implications for LP investors investing in affordable housing? Is it longer terms? Is it like the exit strategy is more difficult? Talk to us about that. So it could be longer term, but not necessarily. Often it could be shorter terms as well. So I'll just talk to what we're doing, right? And so in our projects with limited partner investors, it looks just like typical syndication outside of there being a few different exit strategies. So one exit may be a sale. They obviously understand that. The other exit could be another tax credit resyndication. And so what is that? It's mainly restarting the clock and bringing in that entity institution equity partner again. So that's our a, that's limited- a positive. That's actually a advantage because you have a different exit strategy that you would do in a different from a regular syndication. Is that true? 
True. Yeah, right. There's multiple ways to win, right? So market rate, you have that method of winning, but this one, you sort of have another one, right? Now, downside of that is in order for that to happen, we've got to get state approval. State approval is not guaranteed, right? There's applications, there's fees involved. So that's some of the downside. Downside as well, compliance. There's a whole lot of paperwork that has to be done in order to get these projects approved. There's also paperwork from the tenants. So people can't make too little, which is a good thing, right? You can't just not have any income and live in our apartments, but you also can't make too much. So you can't make $250,000 income rent an affordable house. And they try to reserve it and restrict it to income for the people who need it. So that could be a potential downside. Some of the upside is that we buy these projects. And now, now mind you, you have market rate, you have affordable housing projects and market rate may be $180,000 a unit right? It's just what the market is. We're coming in here and our cost basis on these projects oftentimes is way less, sometimes in half, right? So you may get $80,000 a door or $120,000 a door where market is much higher than that. So you've probably seen this, like once the clock expires, right? The value of the property goes up tremendously. And as you get closer to that expiration, it's like every year it gets a little bit more juicier to that end buyer, right? Because, hey, there's only five years left. Now it's worth this. Oh, there's only two years left. Now it's worth even more. So we naturally buy it at a very low cost per unit, right? Like right now, project 65 is crazy. It's like in Atlanta, it's less than 65000 a door, right? Which is just unheard of. But as we get closer, as these tax credits expire, that in unit buyer looks at it and say, hey, it's a 95 build, it's a 2000 build, whatever. Market rate, it's going to be a lot higher. So we inch closer to that market profit margin as the project goes on, right? So that's a benefit. Another is demand, right? Because if our tenant base, look, we're looking for police officers, we're looking for school teachers, retail workers, people with jobs, right? Not poor people. I mean, I don't want to say poor people, but I don't want to categorize anybody because whatever. Part of my life, I was poor myself. Anyways, back to what I'm talking about. Yes. We cater to people who are working, who have jobs, but they just can't afford to spend so much of their money there. By doing that, our tenant base is really looking for our product. So what we have is natural pent up demand because, as you mentioned, those rents were $400 less than what market rate was in the same building. Our tenants see the same thing, right? Hey, if I go live somewhere else, it's $400 more. So by having that baked in, you get longer tenants, you get higher occupancy rates, and you've also got the same thing as market rate. You can still evict people. They're not required to stay there. Hey, you don't want to live here. You don't want to follow the rules. Okay, you can go try to find another place to live at, but good luck. So you don't, so don't we have, use all that to our advantage. You don't have any eviction restrictions when a tenant comes in. Affordable housing is basically about a person has to make below a certain threshold of income to be able to come and live at one of these communities. And then they have to spend 30% of their income for rent. What happens if there is a deficit there? What happens if the 30% of their income is less than the rent? Does the government step in and pay the difference? They can do that, but it's not required on our part. So what may happen is you have someone, they'll get, this is where Section 8 can come in, to the person, right? So they may say, hey, I can contribute $1,000 a month towards my rent. Maybe we're renting for $1,200 or $1,300 or something like that. And that other $300 may come from Section 8 if we choose to accept them. But 
it's our choice as property owners, right? You can accept them, you cannot accept them. And if they don't behave or whatever, right, you can evict them. So it really operates well. And you see how there's demand there for just people who are saying like, hey, I want to be able to live in a nice place. And that's one of the few things about it too, is that or one of the differentiating factors is that because it was built in a certain way and they're not that old comparably, right? They would have to go to live in a really C-class neighborhood for the same rent, whereas people offer B and in some cases A class properties for that same affordable price. So like, hey, I want to live here. Obviously, this is a better situation for the tenant. Okay, okay, great. Okay, I'd like to go back to something that you mentioned before, August. And so we were kind of mentioning in this day and age, investors aren't really looking for profits, but also impact. So they're asking that question, how is my investment helping change the world? And that's really common that we hear nowadays by investors. So my question for you is this, is are you targeting investors who are looking for impact investing? Yes and no, right? I would say that I understand we live in a capitalist society. I'm personally doing this because I'm connected to it, right? I Growing up, I lived in some affordable housing projects. I spent the majority of my life being a tenant that was more concerned with the cost of living than I have been an investor. So there's a part of me that just wants to do it because my heart is there. At the same time, I understand that these projects don't work unless you can turn a profit to people who invest in it. And charity is charity and investments are investments. So we look to sort of combine both of those, right? So that you're able to say, hey, I'm making an impact, but I'm also going to make a return. With that, that's where we hope that our investors may be able to, meaning that Hey, we had conversations where, look, we're going to get another equity partner in two years. Yes, I am aware that you would love to have the tax breaks for the next five years or longer, right? But bear with this, right? We're going to return your money faster, try to 1031 it into something else. It may come a case where we're going to keep it properties a little bit longer, but we really feel like this model, understanding what it is, is my opinion, honestly, the, the next true safe haven for capital. Why? Because affordable housing isn't going anywhere. I mean, you're taking real estate that's already there, but you've sort of been able to insulate it from market impacts because, hey, the market goes crazy. Affordable housing isn't going crazy, right? And there's not enough of the product there. We just can't build enough affordable products for the people who need it. So if you're placing your capital into an affordable housing project, you feel like you're not going to lose money, right? We may not kill it or whatever, but it's going to be safe. It's going to be consistent and it's going to be returned. Are there tax advantages to LP investors that invest in affordable housing aside from tax advantages that exist with depreciation and other advantages that exist in class syndication models? Right. Yeah. Great question. So when it comes to taxes, yes and no. Right. If we don't decide to work with another equity partner, we will do a cost segregation and we'll take complete advantage of all the tax breaks, just like any other real estate. No matter what we do, we still get the tax benefits, right? You still get depreciation. The downside is if we are going to work with an equity partner, right? Obviously, when we do this, your listeners, and you may be asking, why would you work with an equity partner? Why would they do that? Well, when they get these projects ready for the next 15-year period, they usually change everything. I mean, like they do what you call a physical conditions assessment, physical needs assessment, and they look at every item, every component of apartment complex. And if it does not have a shelf life of 15 years or over, they replace it. So new roofs, new HVACs, new windows, new doors, appliances, whatever. So it gets a complete new makeup and that's better for the tenants that live there and for the long term of that equity partner. 
When it goes to cost seg, they get the cost segregation benefits of doing it because they do such a significant rehab. And our investors, we don't do a cost seg because we're like, hey, we're only going to be in this two years. It doesn't make sense. We're not going to be able to recoup the money of the cost seg in such a short period of time, right? And usually on those projects, we aren't at that point putting a lot of capital into redoing the property because we know we're going to exit in a relatively short period of time. Okay. I have a somewhat of a difficult question. I don't think it's going to be easy for you to answer it. You have two communities next to each other, built in the exact same year, in the same exact neighborhood, literally next door to each other, same number of units. They're identical. One of them is affordable housing. The other one is not. What is the price difference between the affordable housing and the standard building? Is there a common ratio that you guys go by, which is usually 25% lower or X amount of percentage commonly lower? Or is it case by case situation and what have you? Yeah, it's going to be a case by case situation. The way it's going to break down, it's still NOI. But what will happen is like in your scenario, you had a $400 deficit between the market rate and the affordable housing. Well, it's same numbers, right? We're going to look at NOI based on $400 less. What does that work out in the cost per unit? Now, the way that we profit off of that is as those restrictions get closer to expiring, now we can go back and we can realize that $400 deficit in NOI, obviously larger apartment complex, there's more money to be had, bigger exit. So it's both NOI approach and you still got the loss to lease, but in the case of an affordable housing, your loss to lease is not to market is what the allowance is for that particular community. But there still could be a way where you can increase the NOI from that restriction rather than it being market. It is the restriction set by government for that particular community kind of thing. Correct. Yep. All right. All righty. Okay, well, I promised a crash course. It's definitely been a crash course. Great questions. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we switch the conversation to self-development? So you are a Marine, so that's pretty much as self-developed human being as it really gets. So if you could talk to us about how your military background helped you in your real estate career. Sure. I think like... I started very early, right? Right out of high school when I went into the Marine Corps. Definitely gave you those things of just being responsible, being a man of your word, doing what you say you're going to do. Mainly, it's just like making the core principles of who you are and shaping you as a person, right? And I think that it's rare. You know what I mean? It amazes me the number of people that I talk to that simply just don't do what they say they're going to do, right? And so I think that just being able to have that be part of your characteristics, people are able to pick up on that. And especially when you're doing something like raising capital, operating projects, you want to have that sort of reputation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Now on the self-development topic for investors who are watching this and want to scale their business or get into real estate syndications, what would be your advice when it comes to coaching or other educational resources? Yeah, I'm big in that. I put a lot of thought about it. I mean, when I look over my life, there was nobody in my inner circle that was a department investor that was wealthy, that was seven-figure earner, eight-figure earner, none of that, right? So the only reason I've learned what I have learned is because I was willing to invest in myself and pay somebody else to show me. And over the course of my life, just looking at that, now it's like the biggest life hack you could possibly make, right? Because I think that the typical educational system of going to college is dwindling fast, right? You're not finding value out of that. But at the same time, you can get real training from a real person who has done something, right, that you want to do. And it's like, it's a no brainer if you want to get X result. So I love that model. And it's probably something I'm going to continue to do the rest of my life. 
Amazing. Right on. Amazing. I've been to some of your meetups or events that you host and very informative. And yeah, I will definitely put the link to that as well, because you help educate others as well instead of receiving education yourself. All right, great. So we'll get into how to connect with Jason in a moment here. And we'll be in the show notes as well. If you want to invest in affordable housing, I'm thinking about possibly putting a certain portion of our portfolio into affordable housing. So we'll be on a call with Jason discussing how to collaborate and co-syndicate. Yes, there we <laughs> so, go. So uh, let's All get right. to the next segment of the show. All right, Jason, the 10 championship rounds to financial freedom. So whatever comes top of mind. All right, yeah, let's do it. All right, first question. Who is the most influential person in your life? Oh, that's tough. I don't know if it's even anyone that is alive. I would probably say Jim Rohn. He, I listened to his videos. Like I teared up when I found out that I listened to so many of his videos before. Just like, who is this guy? And I think that he really did a good job of one, just being a great orator, but being able to simplify life and give you principles that you can take along your journey. So. Right on. All right. Great. Next question is, what is the number one book you'd recommend? The Alchemist, I'll probably say. Can I give two? Yeah. I would say the Alchemist is more like that framework, just a great story. It's a fun read. It's value packed, right? And then I would also say the science of getting rich. The science of getting rich is more practical, but it takes accomplishing goals and creating wealth and boils it down to a science. Hey, step one, step two, step three. And it's a quick read. And I like books that, that I can get through fairly quick. Alchemist is my mom's number one favorite book. Really? So, yeah, she's right. What is that? The Alchemist. I haven't had a chance oh, to read it, okay. but my mom's she's been recommending that to book to me for years. I okay. just haven't had it up. Oh, mama, please forgive him. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right, next question. If you had the opportunity to travel back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? To go back in time and talk to a younger me, I would say don't take incremental steps. Find out what you want to do and just go do that immediately. It's one of those things like we're taught, I was taught grade one, grade two, grade three, you got to do this. And when I'm trying to think about my life, it's like, all right, I'll do this. I'll make that step, right? You're still trying to graduate to certain grades before you do stuff. And the quickest way to get there is just to go directly to that thing and you sort of figure it out. And it's a shortcut on your life to getting to where you want to go. Nice. Nice. Really nice. Okay, Jason, next question. What's the best investment you've ever made? Ooh, I would probably say, I'm going to be a little different, right? I could talk about projects and what we've done and equity multiples and that sort of thing. But I would honestly probably say the best investment I've made has been an investment into me. If you look at what I've paid other people over the course of time and what that has returned to me in my life, it's like it's the best one, right? Nothing has ever compared to that. Beautiful. Now, what's the worst investment you've ever made? And what lessons did you learn from that? Yeah, I'm in the worst investment I ever made right now, right? And it is a trucking business, right? So had a friend, we were doing Turo. I don't know if you're aware of that, like car sharing app. And that was going well. And said, well, let's scale this thing and go buy some semi-trucks, right? Now we're going to get sexy with it. And so bought a couple of semis and it's been a disaster. Absolute disaster. We didn't know what we were doing. We did not have a coach. We had enough knowledge to go do it and be dangerous. And it was definitely dangerous and I'm paying for it. I'm sorry to hear it. On the surface, sounds like a good business idea. You yeah. Know, tour for Stress. semi-trailers and semi-trucks. Yeah, it sounds good. Maybe it'll turn around. Yeah, Turo was the business model that we did at first. That's just cars. Yeah. Semi-trucks is a whole nother business. I mean, it's you got to be efficient and you got to be dialed in. Got it. Okay, Jason, next question. How much would you need in the bank to retire today? What's your number? How much do I need in the bank to retire today? That is a good question to think about that. I'm sort of reverse engineering it right now. I want to say- It could be passive. 
You could be passive um, income too as well. Million, okay. Two million, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm doing. Basically doing the math. I'm saying like, all right, let's just call it 10 million. If I did 10 million, 8% annually, 800 grand, could I live off that? Okay. That would be on the low end, right? Obviously. Apartment, apartment investors, we're always thinking about the passive income. Yeah, income, right? yeah, so, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I think that just parked into, you can live off that. Absolutely. Nice. All right. Now, if you could have dinner with someone dead or alive, who would it be? Ah, dinner with someone dead or alive. That was good, right? So I really like, person that comes to mind, Asan Guru, right? I really like his teachings. And I'm like, I think that I could ask him a lot of questions and get his perspective on it. He's one that sort of sticks up. Okay, cool. Okay. Now, if you weren't doing what you're doing today, what would you be doing now? If I weren't doing this, I would be hustling somewhere, right? So what I've had, there's one thing I want to self-identify myself as. It's been like a very discontent person. So things aren't going the way that I like them to, then I'm almost willing to do anything to make that change. Rather that's betting it all, uh, working like crazy or doing something that most people won't do. So if I was not doing this, I found some contentment in doing it. I would probably be in something else that I wasn't content with. And then I would either find success somewhere else or I'd be squirming like hell to find it. Yeah. What it is about syndication is there's just so many moving components. It yes. always keeps you sharp and on your toes because you're dealing with investors and bringing in investors and servicing your investors. You're looking at deals, underwriting deals, due diligence, all that fun stuff. Yeah. And then you got it. Great. You got those two components and now you got to execute the business plan. So cool. it's a business that takes all your attention and focus. So that's right. Okay, my favorite question, book smarts or street smarts? Streets. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. That was an alley hoop. 100. <laughs> okay, last question. What's the saying? Ounce of doing is worth more than a pound of theorizing. Oh, really? Just like you go do stuff, you figure it out. Street smarts is going to get you further. It's going to get you there. All right. My opinion. Yeah, August is writing that one down. Perfect. Okay, last question. If you had a million dollars in cash and you had to make one investment today, what would it be? I come back. I want to put it with Jason. I'm going to bet on a winning horse. And that, that, that sounds very arrogant. You know what I mean? But it's reality, right? What can I do in order to sort of grow either something that I already invest in or an investment I want to make? Because I feel like I'll do well with it. Right on. Tremendous. Awesome. Jason, what's the best way that people can reach you? Sure. If you go to jasonstubblefield.com, there's some links there. Take you to a Facebook group. I share out a lot of information and content there. Also, you can get to our website if you want to make investments or see some of the investments we've made. But jasonstubblefield.com is the hub for both of those and take you to where you want to go. Awesome. awesome. Really appreciate your time. Appreciate your transparency. Appreciate all the knowledge you bestowed upon us. And have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful holidays, Thanks, my friend. Jason. Happy holidays. Hey, you too. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We hope this conversation enlightened you on how to win big in this highly profitable and risk adverse space. Get on your feet and embrace this world that offers so many opportunities just waiting for you out there. Continue your journey to becoming a savvy real estate expert by subscribing to the show at cpicapital.ca. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and share with your friends. See you on the next one.